Hi there. I am so excited to invite you to attend our fourth annual free virtual special education and advocacy conference. We are hosting it here at Ashley Barlow Company in partnership with Rebecca Poe Teaching. And we are so excited for a few new things at this year's conference. The first new thing is that we have not just one, but two different tracks for attendance. For the first time ever, we have created a track that is specific for school staff and teachers. We also still have that traditional track that we intend to be really great for parents and caregivers in the IEP arena. So yes, we have a teacher track and a parent track. On that teacher track, you are going to learn about things like easier data collection, gestalt language processing, behavior reading, and other super hot topics in special education practice, as well as advocacy. On the teacher and caregiver track, you're going to learn about stress management for caregivers using adaptive books, something that I have really kind of um, dove into here at my own house, inclusion advocacy, advocacy strategies, and so, so much more. That free ticket will give you one pass, one access to one presentation per hour on the track that you choose, either that teacher track or the parent track. Of course, if you are not available on January 19th or January 20th when the conference is taking place, you can buy tickets to access the conference on demand. And those tickets, of course, are available at our website, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference slash 2024. Check out the website for more information about ticketing. This year, we also have something super exciting planned. We have decided to make this a two-day event. When I partnered with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I told her that I really feel like school districts, disability organizations, and other community organizations need to start providing trainings that are accessible to teachers, related service providers, administrators, parents and caregivers, and other community members that are interested in IEP support. What if we all attended the same training? What if we all learned information about special education practice, curriculum, how to read evaluations, that kind of stuff, about special education advocacy, how we can collaborate more, how we can work together, and even about special education laws. What if we all attended those presentations and we workshopped them together? So together with Rebecca Poteaching, I have created the Empowered Workshop Series, and we are excited to bring it to your organization or school in 2024 and beyond. If you are interested in having Rebecca and I bring a workshop to you, you can see a preview of the Empowered Workshops on January 19th, the Friday before our main conference programming. For more information about that, either send me a DM or check out the website, again, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference dash 2024. We hope to see you January 19th and or January 20th and can't wait to connect with you. Hi everyone, welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, 
a teacher or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer or a staff member at an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with an ice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, advocate, collaborate. Welcome back to the Special Education Advocacy Podcast with Ashley Barlow. I'm Ashley Barlow and I'm so happy you're here. Today we're going to talk about using special education evaluations. I think a lot of parents and maybe even teachers see evaluations as something that just has to be done, but they don't really know how to utilize them. They don't really know how to take evaluations and to turn them into something that will help the specially designed instruction that is supposed to be uniquely tailored to meet the needs of the particular child. And so what we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about what to do with those evaluation results. How do we turn the results from the evaluation into something that is uniquely designed for the child and takes advantage of the child's unique profile? So I'd like to start by talking to you about what I ask parents in initial consultations when they come into my law office. What I say is, what is your child's diagnosis? And then after I write down all the diagnoses, I say, and how does that affect your child uniquely? How does autism affect your child? How does Down syndrome affect your child? What does CP look like in your particular child? And if parents don't know, sometimes they wanna talk about just behavior or they wanna talk about just um, feeding issues. And what I like to talk about is the entire profile. And I've said it on this podcast before, I'll say it again. If you've seen one child with cerebral palsy, you've seen one child with CP. If you've seen one child with autism, you've seen one child with autism. And so what I like to do is I like to look very, very specifically at the particular child and the profile of the child, because not all children with autism have um, a um, an abnormal sense of justice, but some do. And not all children with Down syndrome have a significant cognitive impairment, but some do. And so I need to look specifically at each child in order to develop an IEP that is appropriate for that particular child. So I look very specifically at the diagnosis, but then even deeper into the actual profile of the child. What this allows us to do is it allows us to identify strengths and weaknesses of the child. And once we know strengths and weaknesses, then we can build a curriculum that is really, really great and specially designed for the particular child. So that begs the question, what do evaluations really tell us about a child? What can I learn from an evaluation? And we can learn very specific things from an evaluation. The first thing we can learn is simply about eligibility. Does a child qualify for special education services? And we talked about that in episode six, which was the introduction to special education evaluations. If you haven't listened to that episode, when you're finished with this one, it might be a good place to start or to circle back to so that you can hear a little bit more about evaluations from the outset. 
But ultimately in evaluation and special education, the first one, that initial evaluation, is designed to decide whether or not a child qualifies for special education and related services. Evaluations can also tell us whether or not interventions are working or whether or not specific interventions might possibly work. Because we look specifically at the strengths and weaknesses of the child, and we know that certain interventions are designed for certain profiles, for certain strengths and weaknesses. And then a third thing that evaluations can tell us is they can tell us very specifically about those strengths and weaknesses for each child. And that's what we're going to focus on today. So we do the evaluations and the evaluations give us all sorts of data. It gives us all sorts of information. And once we have that information, we can make decisions. So we have to have the evaluation information so that we can make decisions. Now this is not something that is unique to special education. We make decisions based on data all the time. Now I wanna tell you, I've told you before, I don't love math. I don't love numbers. There's kind of a joke that lawyers went to law school because we don't like to do math. Of course, I also do family law work, so I have to do child support calculations, and I triple check them because I don't like to do math. However, I'm always using data in my life to make reasonable, objective decisions. So I've got four examples for you. Surveys and ratings. I've asked you, and I will ask you again today, to rate my podcast. If you are enjoying what you're hearing, or even if you aren't enjoying what you're hearing, I'd ask that you go out to wherever you're listening and that you would rate my podcast. Go ahead and give it the one-star rating or the four-star rating. Give it the five-star rating. Leave me a comment. That helps me to make my content better. I use that data, I use the average number of stars that I have in order to say, oh, my listeners like what I'm doing or my listeners would like a different kind of topic or a different kind of format or something different. Health data. A lot of us wear watches and other devices that give us lots and lots of health data in the very instant that it occurs. I wear an Apple Watch and I look at my heart rate several times a day. I look at my resting heart rate. I look at some of the other data to see how I'm doing on my activity levels and that sort of thing. I know, for example, that my heart rate will actually decrease on a daily basis after I've gotten acupuncture and also if I'm practicing yoga regularly. My heart rate does not decrease significantly if I have a really significant week of exercise. I think it's probably already so low because I do a lot of cardio and I think that's probably the reason why. So I've made a hypothesis about why that would happen. Another example from our phones is screen time. Every Sunday, my phone comes up and tells me how much screen time I've had. And friends, I'm recording this during the COVID-19 pandemic and it isn't pretty. But regardless of that, it tells me what my screen time is. And then I can make a plan to either increase it, which I don't know why I would do that, or to decrease it. What am I going to do so that I'm not spending as much time on my phone and on my iPad, etc.? We also can use data when we set um, other kinds of goals. So I might say, I would like to be able to do chin-ups. Last week, my children were doing a chin-up competition and my little Jack asked me if I would participate in the competition. I can't do one chin-up. And so maybe we look at the data and say, today I can do zero chin-ups. 
How many chin-ups can I do on January 1st, February 1st, March 1st? How can I get a little bit better at doing my chin-ups? So once I've set that goal or once I've decided what I'm going to look at, then what I do is I come up with a plan to improve the data. I come up with some kind of strategy or, um, goal or, or plan in order to achieve that goal. So if my podcast had poor reviews and if I decided I wanted to revamp it, then maybe the first step would be to do some kind of survey to say to my audience, hey, would you take this five question survey to tell me how I can get better? Or I might look at um, some other kind of podcast that's similar and see if they do something differently. So I would implement some kind of strategy. I would make a plan and then I would implement it. If my heart rate is high, I might think about doing some kind of dietary change, or I might think about switching up my exercise. As I've indicated already, I've noticed that increasing my exercise does nothing for my heart rate particularly. Another idea is the chin-up idea. So if I want to do more chin-ups, my plan might be to start on that Nautilus machine that actually lifts you up for the chin-up um, so that I am lifting up probably less body weight is what that does. And maybe then I slowly decrease my support over the course of time as I'm able to do more and more chin-ups. So this is how these things would work in everyday life. The same thing happens in a school setting. The specially designed instruction is based on that evaluation data. So we take the evaluation data and then what we do is we look to see what kind of plan we can implement, what kind of specially designed instruction we can implement. So we use the data to make decisions at school. Now, evaluations tell us a lot, and there are evaluations for just about everything under the sun, but I wrote down a really quick, not comprehensive list of different things that we can evaluate when we're doing educational evaluations. So of course we evaluate for IQ, cognitive aptitude. That tells us a child's um, cognitive aptitude or ability. Then we can test for all kinds of um, other, other ways to test intelligent. So a child that might not be super verbal, we might want to take a non-verbal intelligence test. There's lots of different ways to test for a child's general overall IQ. We also test academic skills, reading, writing, and math. And that's not enough. We want to get really, really deep into reading, really deep into writing, and the same thing for math. And so in reading, we might test oral reading, spelling, how well a child tracks phonemes or counts syllables and tracks syllables, decoding, rate, accuracy, all of those things. We can test all of those and we know there's many, many more components to reading. Similarly in math, we're not only tracking math computation, but we're also tracking numeration, fluency, um, comprehension of math word problems, etc., etc., etc. Now we can also track things other than just academic skills and IQ, like adaptive behavior, all of the different parts to communication, like expressive language, receptive language, pragmatic and functional language, articulation, we can test visual perception, we can test auditory processing, short-term memory, all of those things. 
And then of course we know there's also lots of different profiles. So we can test a child specifically for a certain diagnosis. And not only are we testing for the diagnosis, but we're looking to see where a child scores on those different profiles. So we might be testing a child for ADHD or for autism or for color blindedness, for an emotional disturbance. There's all kinds of tests out there, friends. And not only are we looking for the actual diagnosis and the eligibility information, but more importantly, we're looking for the information to tell us how we can actually teach the child. And for that, we need to look at the strengths and weaknesses. So those tests will tell us a lot about a child's profile. And when I'm talking about a child's profile, I'm talking really specifically about the child's visual skills and needs, the child's verbal skills and needs, auditory skills and auditory needs, motor skills, cognitive, sensory, communication skills and needs, vision, hearing, medical, all of those different categories. I'm looking at both the strengths and the weaknesses of the child. Because what we're trying to do is we're trying to make a plan. And so we need to tease it out. We need to know exactly what kind of learner this child is. And then what that will help us do is that will help us to make a plan to formulate specially designed instruction for the child. So we use all of the evaluations to tell us about the child's profile, and then we take what we know about the child and we make hypotheses about how to teach. Now this is where we get into the specially designed instruction. And you've probably heard me say that is the heart of the IEP. That's why you're on the IEP to begin with. You're getting instruction that is specially designed for that particular child. And it is based on that child's unique needs. So now we know what that child needs because we've looked really deep into the child's profile and we've really teased it out. So now what we're gonna do is we're gonna find instruction that is specially designed to help that child, to help that child specifically based on their profile. So a couple of examples. If you have a child that has really, really strong visual skills, then that child, for example, might benefit from a program like Touch Points Math. Touch Points Math is a math program that puts dots on the numbers. So the number one has, a, has one dot, and the number two has two dots. And they're kind of spread out like on a die. I always explain to my clients that, um, you know, when we see dice, we don't have to count every single time, one, two, three, four, five, because we know that the pattern of the five has five dots. And touch points math is very similar. Touch points math also applies to money and they've got lots of different things. And what it does is it hopes that once we put those dots on the numbers long enough, that the child can utilize that visual perception and visual memory in order to start to do math in their head without the actual dots on the numbers. And so that really capitalizes on a child's visual processing skills, on the child's visual profile. Similarly, if you have a child with really strong verbal skills, what you might want to do in terms of the educational placement or in some kind of supplementary aid or service is you might want to capitalize on that verbal profile by Im implementing a lot of small group activities. Because a child that's learning in small group is going to be interacting with more and more children, 
And that child might learn more by teaching or by engaging, by talking about what they're learning. There are a lot of us that learn more when we teach it. And so if a child is engaging with somebody else in group work or doing some kind of small group activity where they have to talk about what they're doing, they, that child with that verbal profile, that verbal strength might do better just simply talking about it orally. We also have um, situations where some programs are not ideal. So I'll give you an example that's really true to my home. My school district's um, distance learning plan during this COVID-19 pandemic is an online learning platform. And the online learning platform does not have very many visuals at all. Rather, it relies very significantly on a child's short-term memory and auditory processing skills. My child has that visual profile. And so sometimes there will be multiple choice answers that will not be written on the page. It will say something like, um, which answer has shh? And we'll be looking for that SH. And then the three answers will be shock, pool, and clock. However, it doesn't say S-H-O-C-K. It just says A for shock. And then the B will light up and it'll say pool. And then the C will line up and it'll say clock. But it never has the visual picture. And that's very, very difficult for my child who is a, a visual learner and who also has auditory processing delays. And so sometimes we look at a program and we say that program will not be ideal for a child or even that program will never work for that child. We're not gonna make significant progress from that program alone because it doesn't match up with the child's profile. So sometimes we're looking at, prof at, at programming that is suggested for specially designed instruction and we say, that will never work, that's not a good idea. And so that leads me to a bit of advice. What do we do with this information? What I like to do when a, when a um, program is being suggested to be used as specially designed instruction is I like to ask really specific information about that suggested program. I think it's really important to ask specifics about the specially designed instruction and then to research it or to apply it to your child vis-a-vis -vis your child's unique profile. So you might ask questions like, why does this program benefit my child vis-a-vis -vis my child's strengths and weaknesses? Or you might go straight through the strengths and weaknesses. Okay, so my child has a visual, a real strength in visual um, processing. And so how does this program capitalize on my child's visual strength? Or my child is not strong in auditory processing. And so how does this take that into account and um, supplement that need for my child? How does it address that need for my child? So you're gonna look specifically at how we're capitalizing on strengths and how we're addressing a child's needs. And you might go very, very specifically into it and say, how does it facilitate that? How does it facilitate my child's need for repetition or my child's need for auditory support or my child's need for frequent breaks? That's another thing that you wanna look at is you wanna look at not only the academic strengths, 
but you want to look at some of those adaptive strengths. The program that my child's doing right now, for example, in his online learning program, um, does not allow for breaks. If you take a break or if you discontinue something midway, the next day you have to come back and you have to do the whole lesson again. So you might get 18 minutes into a lesson and say, okay, that's enough for today. We've got this short attention span. We'll take a break and we'll come back to it. But then when you come back to it, you have to start it all the way over. And that's something that I didn't think to ask. I didn't think to say, oh my gosh, we've got all of these um, long programs and what happens if we don't complete one in one particular time? Now I want for you to remember that the specially designed instruction is the whole reason that you have the IEP. It is the heart of the IEP. It's the meat of the IEP. The instruction should be uniquely tailored to your child's profile. And so if you're sitting in a meeting and if the school says, well, we always use this program for our children that have dyslexia, that program might not be right for your child. And you need to ask the questions in order to ensure that your child gets the right programming, gets the correct specially designed instruction. I, what I'm gonna do for you is I'm gonna develop a freebie. The freebie is gonna be available this Friday. This episode is publishing on December 8th, 2020. The freebie will be available the Friday after. If you're not on my mailing list already, hop over to the website, www.ashleybarlow.com and join the mailing list. The freebie will be announced on Friday. And what the freebie is gonna go through is all of the different kinds of questions that you should ask to make sure that the specially designed instruction is uniquely tailored to meet your child's specific profile as it is described in the child's evaluation. So we have looked at the child's strengths and weaknesses. We have hypothesized about what plans might work. And now what do we have to do? We have to take data to see if those things are actually working. This is why we have progress monitoring. This is why we take data on goals. Because we might think that touch points math, for example, is going to work beautifully. And for whatever reason, it doesn't. So we have to take the data to see how well our hypotheses worked. We have to monitor the progress to see if it's actually working, if that specially designed instruction is actually working. We do this in everyday life. With the heart rate example, I start eating oatmeal and then I look at my heart rate and say, okay, did that improve my heart rate? Did eating oatmeal help my heart rate on average during the month of January, February, March, etc.? Did acupuncture help? When I get acupuncture, my heart rate goes down somewhere between five and eight beats per minute for the first week after acupuncture. It's like a miracle for me by way of anxiety. And so I look at my heart rate and I can see if it's starting to creep up. Oh, it's time to, to schedule my next acupuncture appointment if I'm, if I'm not going on a regular um, consecutive basis. Or how many chin-ups can I do? How many did I do on January 1st, February 1st, March 1st? We're looking at that data, we're tracking it. And if on March 1st it's nine and on April 1st it's only seven, then what happened? Was I just tired on April 1st or did I have an injury or was I not able to continue to practice as much or did I reduce my supports? 
Did I do less? Um, did I did I accept less support from that Nautilus machine that was going to accept some of my body weight and instead do more chin-ups that is um, that's holding up more of my body weight? And so we've made the hypothesis and we're going to take data to see if the plan is working. We're looking at the progress monitoring and the data that comes home from school. We're looking at the report card information. We're looking from data from other sources, like there might be a computer program that your child's doing or tutoring outside of school or progress monitoring that you're taking at home. And we're looking to see if that specially designed instruction is working. And then this is the reason that we continue to evaluate children at least every three years in special education, because we want to see if we are improving academic skills, motor skills, all of those things with that specially designed instruction. And so that's why the IDEA requires that there are triennial evaluations that children are evaluated at least three times a year. Now, when we get those triennial evaluations, it's kind of important to compare apples to apples. And so we wanna make sure that if we're looking at something very specific, that we're looking to see if we're using the same test because different tests will generate, they shouldn't generate super significantly different results, but every test tests things differently. And so it's important that we use the same test if we are really going to rely on that data. Now, one last thing about those triennial evaluations is we have to consider the time that has passed. And so in my chin-up example, if I was a teenager and if I could do five chin-ups, um, let's say I'm 12 years old, and I could do five chin-ups in January and I could do um, 12 chin-ups in December, that is great. And maybe 12 chin-ups would have been average at the beginning of my 12-year-old year, but now I'm doing chin-ups against 13-year-olds and 13-year-olds can do more chin-ups. And so while I might've been in the 50th percentile for 12-year-olds, I'm now back to the 25th percentile for 13-year-olds because I'm doing chin-ups against um, children that are older, children that are stronger, more developed, et cetera. I like to use the, my, um, my child's swimming as an example when I'm explaining that to my clients. So my child is a, um, is a club swimmer, and when you age up in swimming, you have to get faster in order to meet certain um, swim meets. So there are championship meets, and in order to qualify for the meet, you have to have a certain, they call them a cut, a time that is fast enough to get to the meet. And when you're 13, it's kind of hard to get the cuts because you're racing against 14-year-olds because the age group is 13, 14. And 14-year-olds are significantly stronger than 13-year-olds. And so when you're 13, you can almost guarantee that you're not gonna get those cuts and you're not gonna go to the championship meets. But when you're 14 and you're stronger and you're bigger and you've been practicing another extra year, then you're probably more likely to get those cuts. So when we look at triennial evaluations, we also have to consider the time that's passed, even with the significant progress that the child might have made. So that's how we use the evaluation data to drive the specially designed instruction. Like I promised, I'll put something on the website this Friday that'll give you a list of questions to ask about specially designed instruction to make sure that it actually is specially designed to meet your child's unique needs and that it capitalizes on your child's strengths 
and that it supports your child's weaknesses. That's SDI in a nutshell and how we use evaluation data to get that SDI right. I'll see you again next week. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to hop over and rate the podcast. Your input means so much to me.